Hi, y'all. This is Kristen Chenoweth. Hi, I'm Gloria Stefan. This is Sarah Bareilles. Hi, I'm Patty Lapone. This is Lynn Manuel Miranda. You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. Theater lovers, both out and proud, and on the DL, and welcome to Broadway Breakdown, a podcast discussing the history and legacy of American theater's most exclusive address, Broadway. This is the first of many series devoted to specific artists that have helped shape Broadway as we know it today, both for better and for worse. It is called A Little Sondheim Music, and it is dedicated to the musicals of one Mr. Stephen Sondheim. I am your host, Matt Koplick, the least famous and most opinionated of all the Broadway podcast hosts. And with me today is a comedian, an artist, a singer. Uh, You might have seen them on At Home with Amy Sedaris or on High Maintenance, or you might have seen them on the New York stage in the musical that we're discussing today. It is Aaron Markey. Hello, Aaron. Hi. Good to see you through this Zoom lens. This beautiful Zoom lens. Uh, I'm assuming that's all natural light that's just shining on your face today, yes? It is, yeah. I, I tried to place this strategically for the year. <laughs> it's it's very well placed. <laughs> it is uh, nature's ring light is what I'm seeing right <laughs> yeah, now. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Very beautiful. How are you today? I'm I'm good. I'm, uh, I'm not going to talk about the... Um, diet app that I'm using right now. That's all I'm going to say about it. But that is where my mind is most of the time. Okay. Yeah. I said, don't bring it up because uh, it's not sponsoring this podcast. So we don't need to give them any of our time. Nope. Absolutely not. No. Uh, And I'm sorry to keep you in on this gorgeous day, but again, the lighting is just, it's prime for you today. So congratulations on the placement of your, of your uh, computer. (laughs) Um, And what Sondheim musical are we talking about today? We're talking about Assassins. And one might say that you've had uh, some exposure to Assassins. Would that be fair to say? Briefly, yeah. Briefly, (laughs) briefly, but very famously. It was, that was a very well-documented production. You did it at New York City Center in the Off-Center Encores series. Yes. Yes, emphasis on the cores. On the course, on the course, uh, you played one squeaky from. I did. Mm-hmm. I saw that production. I was in the front of the mez, and I recall your scene with one Victoria Clark with Squeaky and um, Sarah Jane Moore, mm-hmm. which is, I mean, I'm not saying this because you're in front of me. Uh, I mean, it helps that you're in front of me, but <laughs> that's just naturally one of my favorite scenes in all of theater I just think it's so well written you guys did it so well and yeah congrats on taking a wonderful scene and doing a good job with it thanks well uh Victoria is very very fun and easy to work with and I felt you know how sometimes I don't know if you if you're a performer or if you've ever performed but like depending on the chemistry with the person you can let your intimidation or your bad chemistry just dominate 
the entire vibe, but she has such good chemistry with everybody that it was very easy. That's wonderful. Yeah, I I used to perform. I'm now sort of in the writing part, but uh, I had a meeting with someone a few months back and this was someone who was trying to get into writing. He it's, Basically, it's an example of where you talk about like how chemistry can sort of be off, but this was a guy who had written songs for a long time and wanted to take his songs and make them fit into a plot, which, you know, that's always just the best way to work. Um, <laughs> and I was like, well, maybe we should meet to sort of see if we have chemistry, if like we get along, if our, if our sensibilities are the same in terms of like what kind of work we want to do. And he yeah. just went, because I've been writing songs for 30 years. I've never not gone along with anybody. I was like, it's not about that. It's, it's about if we mesh, if it's, it, it all goes well together. But he didn't really get that. So um, that's just an example of where, how someone can be talented and yet still doesn't always blend well. So I'm glad that it blended well with Vicky. Yeah, Vicky is no that guy. Yes, <laughs> she's no that guy. <laughs> I call her Vicky like I know her. I don't know her, but um, you know, I everyone's my friend. As you said, I... I walk out of the house every day and I'm performing. I'm just always on and it's exhausting, but what can I do? The world is my audience. Performance studies MFA. You don't need one. You already know what's going on. Exactly. Uh, was was your performance in Assassins, was that your first time being exposed to the show? Um, yeah, it actually was. Uh, I was I was really surprised when they just, they didn't make me audition, which was the best email I've ever received. I, I I despise auditions more than most people, I think. I'd like to claim that. They just, I feel like the power dynamic of auditions just already puts me in a position where I'm set up to fail. But mm -hmm. an offer in all capital letters in the subject heading, I mean, that is, you're asking somebody to do their best work. Absolutely. And it's just, that's just the glamorous, the most glamorous thing I've ever heard. Just email I, offer in all caps. I was like, should I just be offer only from now on after this? But um, that's not how it works. No, but that's, that, I mean, <laughs> I, that's how I sort of, again, I walk out and I perform every day. I live my life like it's always offer only. I, uh, mm -hmm. I just, I just, I tell, I should have, when I reached out to you, I shouldn't have asked. I should have just been like, hey, Aaron, we've never met before, but you're doing this thing. <laughs> no, I mean, just the all capital letters of offer in the subject heading, I would have been like, I'll take it. Absolutely. Whatever it is. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So upon learning the show, because you're a musical person, but I don't, I don't know if you're like a musical theater person, like if that's the world that you sort of came up in, is it? That's the question. Yeah. Um, no, I didn't come up in musical theater. I kind of, I mean, my dad is like, <laughs> we were forced and and we sort of loved it forced to listen to phantom of the opera every single night at 6 p.m when he got home like through his dolby digital surround sound forced at 6 p.m every night sort of loved it <laughs> yeah. so in that way i do come from musical theater but um no i was not trained in like a musical theater school i don't even really think of myself as a singer I just think of myself as somebody who um, who uses their voice because they love to, and it gets incorporated into the work. Erin, I don't know how to say this to you lightly, so I'm just gonna say it. 
that's exactly <laughs> what a singer is. Um, <laughs> it's but, just too much. It's too much pressure. No, sing. I hear you. Well, I think especially now people think singers and they think, you know, these these like really wide ranges and and these like vocal pyrotechnics and American Idol and like that's that's just using an instrument in a different way but no what you do is 100% singing you're a singer I hate to break it to you and now having done assassins you're in the musical theater world I'm so sorry <laughs> I'm more of a the masked singer kind of <laughs> <laughs> I've never seen that show, but it won't leave me alone. It just it, pops up everywhere I go. I watched the Russian doll um la 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 low one. Wait, was that a sentence? Watch the Russian doll sha la 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 low? Yeah, you know that song from A Star is Born with oh, God. Shallow. <laughs> God. <laughs> I did not even think I was you know what I think when you said shalalalo I was thinking shalalalala la 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 that's what I was thinking of shallow I mean, Russian doll was thinking shallow happening in music they weren't the first no they weren't the first but they did piss all over the competition that's what Gaga did with shallow I you know I didn't see the third one yet I'm scared too the, the third star yeah, the third a star is born. I just feel like Judy and Barbara were such perfection. Can Gaga get there? I don't need to know. <laughs> it's it's hard to explain. Uh, technically speaking, it's the fourth one because there was a non-musical one in the 30s with Janet Gaynor, but nobody knows about it because she don't Ooh. sing in it. Ooh. Yeah. Uh, but I will say of the, th- like, Ga- like Gaga, she does great. She does a really great job. It is a little fun to have them be like, she's you no know, working class. She's from, uh, you know, the bad side of town and her face doesn't move. <laughs> she's like, I'm just a poor girl. I can't afford nothing. Meanwhile, she's got $90,000 of Botox in her face, which isn't a judgment on how she looks. It's just, it's that, uh, it's that contrast, you know? Yeah. They should have just superimposed some frames of Francis McDormand from <laughs> Nomadland over those close I need to see that. Have you seen that yet? Oh, yeah. It's good. Let's talk assassins. <laughs> <laughs> <It's> been... <laughs> All right, fine. <laughs> if, if we must. Uh, I assume you were aware of uh, one Mr. Stephen Sondheim before you were offered assassins, yes? You were aware that he was a person who existed? Yes. I was obsessed with Gypsy. Because uh, I took a class, a famously controversial class in college called How to Be Gay. And Gypsy was a huge part of that syllabus. Interesting. Uh, Just like from a pop culture standpoint, because they say it has a queer narrative. Or because Rose, the woman it's based off of in real life, was a lesbian. Well, we read a book. God, I cannot remember the author. But this awesome essayist wrote a book called A Place for Us where he used um, Gypsy as a musical theater allegory to describe like uh, the gay male experience of growing up in a certain time. And it was just devastatingly good. I do recommend it. It's called A Place for Us. Fascinating. I will read that. I have a similar theory, but it's about... um... The Little Mermaid, the Disney Little Mermaid. But honestly, you could just apply to anything. I mean, being a man, legally speaking, uh, I like to apply my story to everything. So I'm like, 
yeah, you know, uh, Devil Wears Prada, totally my story. Working Girl, <laughs> my story. Shawshank Redemption, my story. Centipede, my story. Centipede, human centipede, my story. Yeah, um, centipede. human centipede, fun times. So you were aware of Sondheim, you love Gypsy, as right you should. Gypsy's a wonderful musical, but you didn't really know Assassins. Um, so if and you- Sondheim only wrote the lyrics for Gypsy, right? Sorry. Yes, yes, he did. Yeah. Yes. Uh, by this point, we will have gone way past Gypsy, but anybody who's interested can go back and listen to the episode. It is the second musical he wrote lyrics for for Broadway. His whole like early of his career is kind of weird because like the show that he was supposed to have as his Broadway debut, he was going to write the music and lyrics for and the producer died. That show is called Saturday Night and it finally came to New York in 2000 after like his whole <laughs> career. And everybody's like, oh, what's this new show? He's like, well, it's not really new. It's the first one I ever wrote. It's just, you know, 40 years later. Um, And then got West Side Story from that. And then he was supposed to do Forum, but Forum was taking too long and then did Gypsy. So by the time Forum came out, everyone's like, what makes you think you can write music? He's like, I kind of always have been. Just people keep asking me to do the lyrics. And then if you're really sassy, you can just be like, well, words are music. Yeah. I don't think that's sassy. That's just damn poetry right there. Mm, Thank you. Did, did you come up with that on the spot? Is that all you? Uh, yeah, I would say. <laughs> Fantastic. So if you'll indulge me for a second, Aaron, I'm going to give us a little bit of backstory about how we got Assassins, how it sort of came to be. And then we'll sort of dive into the show and we'll see what you and I both remember and know and understand. And uh, it'll be... Right exactly. It'll be a nice little <laughs> something, something. Uh, so... Assassins comes right after Into the Woods, which as a performer, I'm assuming you are aware of Into the Woods. Obsessed. Yes, aren't we all? That is like the performer Sondheim musical. So Mm -hmm. at this point, Sondheim now has six Tony Awards, I believe six Grammys, and a Pulitzer. He's on his way to winning an Oscar for the movie Dick Tracy. Uh, So similar to when he had Sweeney Todd and he kind of needed a little bit of a speed bump, Assassins, when it came out, was sort of like his next speed bump. He was looking for something to collaborate with John Weidman on. They had done a musical called Pacific Overtures together, which is about the westernization of Japan in the 1800s. And, you know, like you do. And they were looking for things to write about. And Sondheim remembered a script he had read in 1979, I believe. He was uh, on the panel for some like young artist workshop whatever, and read a script for potential musical by Charles Gilbert Jr. And it was called Assassins. And it was about a Vietnam vet who went on to become a presidential assassin. And Sondheim was like, I don't really like the script, but I really like the title and the general idea of writing about assassins. So uh, like 10 years later, he says to Weidman, he's like, oh, you know, I remember the script I read called Assassins. And Weidman's like, yes, how do we get, how do we get it? I want, he's like, can we just like steal the title and the concept? So they call up the playwright who thinks that like Sondheim wants to produce his musical after all these years. And Sondheim's like, no, 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 you misunderstood. I don't like anything you wrote. I just like the idea you have. Wow. Um, I'm sure he was nicer than that, but can you imagine, right. like imagine that email you got Aaron with offer only in caps and uh, all caps and like, we don't want you or anything you do but we were offering you the chance to just stand over to the side while we do something. <laughs> that That's kind of a good offer still. Yeah, I guess. I mean, as long as it's an offer. An offer is an offer, an offer. Uh, apparently the opening 
scene in the script was uh, a shooting gallery and sometimes like that's a great opening image especially for you know assassins so they steal that as well not steal they tell him these are the things we'd like to use we like to take your title and we like to take the shooting gallery and we'll write everything else new because they actually optioned the play no i don't <sighs> legally speaking i don't know exactly what happened i think it's just that the play like the play didn't have any kind of representation it was just you know a, a script that was written and sondheim and weidman wanted the title and they wanted the opening image and so that way they could avoid being sued they reached out to the playwright and they were like we don't want to do your play we just like your title and we like your opening image if we promise that nothing else will resemble what you've written can we do it and he's like yeah um as long as you know uh nobody like if somebody wants to do my play you can't like bar them from doing it because you're writing it and they're like no absolutely absolutely and i don't think that problem ever arose right. so yeah i mean Charles Gilbert Jr. who. So <clears throat> they go about writing the show and they do a production at uh, Playwrights Horizons in 1991, I believe. Mm -hmm. Yes. Uh, opens in January of 91. The whole concept of the show of it being sort of like a vaudeville review came about because they were like, originally it was going to be a history of assassins and it was going to be like the world of assassins. And they're like, well sadly that's too long of a show because we've had so many of them over the years and they go okay how about just in you know the last like century or two centuries and then they go even that's too much they go okay we'll just make it america and they go wow even that's too much we'll just make it presidential assassins and that's sort of how they're able to narrow it down and weidman was like i just got bored writing like and then this happened this happened i was like can i have this assassins interact with each other can i have like screwiness with timelines and they went for it. And uh, I, from what I understand, Weidman basically wrote the script as it is today. Sondheim read it. And he's like, great, I'll find the songs I want to use. And he like doesn't change anything. It opens a Playwrights Horizons with Victor Garber and Annie Golden and Terrence Mann and Deborah Monk and my personal favorite, Eddie Corbich. And it was going to be a big Broadway transfer, but all the reviews were like, eh, no. Nah. Yeah, it came out right um, in the middle of the Persian Gulf War and everyone was sort of like, not the time guys not the time right yeah and we'll go into how that all unfolds after we talk about the show when we get into the legacy of assassins so that was actually probably the shortest history i've ever given on a show in this oh, in this series i feel honored you're very welcome well like you know unlike say uh follies which took you know, 10 years, almost 10 years to get to Broadway. Sweeney Todd took a few years. Merrily had a very troubled preview process. This was all like pretty smooth. They had the idea. They started writing it. They put it up a year later. Not a ton of people liked it, but they were like, well, we, we do. Um, it is big, it has yeah. to go to Broadway. It has to go to uh, Broadway, but Sondheim. Uh, but alas, it does not. This is like the first time a Sondheim show that like had all this press did not end up on Broadway which is fine it does come to Broadway later we'll discuss it but uh yeah like really the the true like story I guess you you could say comes after the fact the, like getting it produced was not the ticket that was not the story the real story is like what happens after but we'll get to that once we talk about the show so the show the show how would you describe what the show's about Aaron Oh gosh, I'm sorry. I should put this on silent. Oh my! Very God. rude. Um, I'm gonna eat my lunch now because I thought that we were holding some decorum during this interview, and 
now that I know that's out the window. Do your worst. Ah. Um, I don't know. I mean, it's a show. It's a show about like the where and how in the gut the impulse to like um, choose to inflict violence on a huge government celebrity comes from. Yeah, that is definitely <laughs> it on a thematic level for the basics out there, for all of you lovely basic babies. It is a dreamlike vaudeville chronicling all of the major uh, presidential assassins in America, those uh, that have been successful and those that have not, uh, right. starting with John Wilkes Booth and, you know, ending with, uh, what's his face? Uh, um, Lee Harvey Oswald. Yeah. I was going to call him John Benjamin Hickey. I was like, that's not it at all. No. 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 But we have others like Squeaky From and uh, Sarah Jane Moore. And it's weirdly very funny and very moving, but also uh, kind of bizarre. And yeah, uh, when you were working on the show, what was like your first thought when you were kind of looking over the material? How did it hit you? Um, well, it, it hit me in a very musical theater way. I'll say that. And I was like, a little bit of me was like, I don't know. I don't know if I feel like going down this road right now, but I'm so lucky that I, I did go down the road because mm -hmm. once you're inside of it, you don't have the critical eye anymore. You have the like, get her done eye. And that exactly. we're I'm so proud of us eye. So it's, um, it's a really hard, it's hard music. Yeah. So it was, yeah. So it was difficult to learn together as an ensemble. A couple of the like more ensemble songs in the beginning and the end. I can't even remember. National, another national anthem. I was going to say another national anthem is probably the hardest song in that show to learn uh, yeah. as an ensemble. Yeah. Everybody's Got the Right is pretty. Um, yeah, that one's pretty easy. Yeah. And is it, I mean, I also just really love the song. Like it starts off so like weirdly sinister and it's very, you know, the, um, uh, what's the name? The Executioner, is that his name? No. Um, no, there's the Balladeer and the, it's what? the Balladeer and somebody. Uh, the proprietor. Proprietor, yes. I'm trying to say Executioner. The Proprietor. Uh, when he begins the song with the, hey, buddy, da, 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 come up and kill the president. It's very, um, devils inviting you to hell kind of thing it's very seductive very odd and dissonant and then it goes into the like jaunty little musical theater tune and that's when yeah. I kind of sit there and I tap my toes I'm like I'm tapping my toes for a bunch of people who are about to shoot people that's yeah <laughs> turning the tables <laughs> on me so I guess what we're saying here is that um I'm a basic musical theater person. So I'm looking at this material. I'm like, oh my God, so odd and weird. And we've got Aaron here who's like, you don't know weird. <laughs> Sitting in your little castle. Um, well, that music, that that melody that you just sang is actually like super weird and difficult. Yeah. yeah. I will, I, I mean, there's lots of like weird melodic phrases that are, are like chef's kiss to... Mm. Sondheim that I was super excited to crawl inside of and listen to mm. over and over and I'm putting that in quotes because it was a five night run yeah how long did you guys have to rehearse a week two weeks 10 days 
Okay. Or maybe that was in, that included all the show dates too. Um, no, it couldn't have. Yeah, I, I think, think ten days. No, ten days. Okay. I mean, definitely not a lot of time, but you got it done. So that's we insane did. and amazing. Yeah. yeah, that's wonderful. Um, was there a moment <laughs> when? See what? No, go ahead. <laughs> go ahead. Um, <laughs> was there? Did you guys like have a moment collectively as a unit when it all sort of felt like it came together or was it just a little too much of like kind of chaos that you didn't realize that it was together until you took your final bow? It certainly felt in, insane like right up to the first night we opened, but by the, yeah, by the like final night, it felt pretty in as much in the pocket as it could. Yeah. You know? Uh, I, I was even the fact that we were holding binders for another national anthem. Yes, well, you could have to. I we mean, we really had to. It was insane, and my head was in the book. I was like, I'm gonna trip over this cape. I mean, so something I was reading about with a lot of Sondheim shows with company, the first time they, that that was put on, because that was like mostly actors who kind of sang. Yeah. Uh, I didn't have any really musical training in that show. You know, the opening of Company is essentially like a more Broadway e version of National Anthem where everyone's singing various different things. Right. And it took them a full day just to learn the first two pages. So Yeah. That's that's them. So of course you guys need if you guys have 10 days to do the whole show, get it up and running, like, yeah, you're gonna get binders for new for another national anthem. That's that's just, you know, being aware that your actors are human beings. It's the other national anthem saying, if you want to hear, it says bullshit. It says never. It says sorry. It says listen to the tune that keeps sounding in the distance on the outside coming through the crowd. To the hearts that go on pounding to the sound getting louder every What would you say is your favorite song with Assassins? Would it be would it be the one that you sang? Are you that kind of person? I mean, that's the one I'm most intimate with, obviously. So sure, it's like in my body. At a, I mean, I was just re-listening to that song, I don't know, like 20 minutes before we started talking. And I got like the same, the same little chills. I was listening to Annie Golden's version mm. and I got the same chills that I had on stage because I just remember like, the terror and the triumph of doing that to like, mm. like a house of 3,000 people and like knowing that everyone in that house knew the words. <laughs> yeah. A and like how far you had to fall if you fucked it up. Yeah. It's and mm. no, you no, said and I'll, I'll frame it negatively. I'll frame it negative. I was about to add a positive, but you don't have to. You don't have to add. <laughs> no, you don't have to end on a positive every time. Uh, no, if, looking back, knowing now what I know about you and your journey with this show, it was kind of, it's amazing and it's great that you succeeded, but it is sort of mean to like put you out on a stage with so little time to prepare on a show where everyone in that audience knows the show probably better than you did and will judge based off of like, well, let's see if uh, they know all the words. Let's see how well they uh, hit the notes. And then to do it, to do it and triumph in it, it's sort of like, you know, you walk off stage and you go, I pissed all over that. Well, I wasn't the only downtown weirdo in that cast. Like, Who else was the downtown weirdo in that cast? 
Danny Wollahan at the time. Now, now he's done. Um, he was just in West Side Story, and then before that, he did To Kill a Mockingbird. So right? assassins then, corrupted him then, be- made him yeah, become a Broadway so. kid. I think so. And then Ethan Lipton, who played um, the proprietor. Ah, huh. now I'm now I'm trying to uh, remember because again, basic bitch that I am, I'm like. Victoria Clark, Stephen Pasquale, Alex <laughs> Bryman, Stephen Boyer. Like, what are, what are you talking about? Those are all Broadway people. But now I'm like, oh, I guess there are other people that I completely forgot about. Uh, yeah, Ethan Lipton, uh, proprietor. Uh, John Ellison Conley, that's a Broadway man. Uh, Shuler Hensley, Broadway man. Uh, sure. Danny Wollahan. Samuel Bick. Okay, yeah, no, that would do it. That would do it. That would do it. Yeah. That would do Anna. it. You're, you're, you're absolutely right, although... So when you did you go to see him in uh, To Kill a Mockingbird? And did you say afterwards you sold out, man? <laughs> no, but I saw him on Instagram all the way through. And did you troll him that all the way? Does an audition for the tour of To Kill a Mockingbird count as seeing Danny in the Broadway version? Sure. I mean, I didn't <laughs> see him in either version, but I did see it. And then I did think about um, reading the book Tequila Mockingbird, but... Ooh, yeah, mm, that's you know. smart. <laughs> so I guess what I wanted to ask you with, um, so your favorite song is the one you sang, Unworthy of Your Love. I don't it know the- if it's my favorite. It's just the most memorable. And because we're four years out, sure, it's my favorite. Sure, sure. <laughs> what? So let's give some context to Unworthy of Your Love. It is the song that Squeaky From sings. Um, mm-hmm. with-, with John... Hinkley. John Hinkley. And you're singing to uh, yeah. someone named Charles Manson. He, yeah. He's pretty known. Currently famous from Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. For those of you who don't want to crack open a history book. Mm. But he is singing to Jodie Foster. So yeah. one could say it's this beautiful love song with creepy uh, targets. <laughs> Which, I mean, awesomely, like, I wish that I had been singing to Jodie Foster. So it was a cool, because it was a duet, mm-hmm. it was a cool way to triangulate the yeah. desire. Because Char- Charles Manson doesn't really do it for me, but I had to figure it out. Yeah. As a performer, you're like, I have to get into this character. I got to figure out how to make it work for me. So, yeah, have Jodie Foster on that stage. You could just sing to her. I think what also helps is, and this is me getting all uh, analytical, but the Jody that um, John is singing to and the Charlie that Squeaky is singing to don't really exist. They're the people that they put up in their own minds. So it's not like you have to base your attitude of the song in this like grounded reality. They're both sort of in this fantasy space. So imagining someone else instead of Charles Manson. Squeaky knew Charles Manson. 
Yes, I know she knew him, but I'm saying that the man that she has in her brain is not really who Charles Manson was. She has a warped vision of him, if that makes sense. Yeah, but I mean, that could be true for any of us about any of the others of us. Just because she's in a set of psych- I mean, she's not psychotic anymore, but she's been she, deep- made, she made a couple wrong choices, okay? <laughs> she, was, she was in a vulnerable state when he came in and was able to find his way through. That is the that is the most simplistic, yeah, kindest way I can think of it. Um, I blame Charles Manson for all presidential assassinations, actually. Even the ones before he was born. Definitely. Yeah, Mostly. I think that's the wisest thing to do. Yeah. <laughs> Why? So, okay, thinking about Jodie Foster, where did you have any like? What are your takeaways from doing that song? As you as you listen to it again, as your body sort of remembers it, what are your takeaways of unworthy of your love? Um, well, you know, the song is like it's about humility on some level, like really humbling yourself for your object of desire. And to um to to sort of like believably perform humility, it's very much not to get all namaste but like you're it is a chest it's a heart opening exercise and because of the structure of new york city center where those balconies are so tall it is begging you to do a heart opener Mm. so it was like yeah the the content of the song plus the space of that theater were just like psoriasis curing (laughs) (laughs) i'm gonna take what you just said and just apply that purely to unworthy of your love yeah aaron markey says unworthy of your love psoriasis curing (laughs) yeah i don't know how to be humble i don't even know where to start so i just i don't think i could ever sing that song i just i i would get into i'm like start by singing that song Hmm? you should start by singing that song and then i'll go oh no i'm now I've learned humility within the first four bars. <laughs> I so okay. With the balladeer and all of the ballads of the assassins, there mm-hmm. are there are only three ballads, and they are all about the assassins that are successful. Uh, Booth, Guito, and I don't know how to say the third one. Schlaz, Schlaz, Cholgash. Oh yeah, Cholgash. Yeah, Cholgash. Oh, ninth time. I don't know. I don't know if that's how you pronounce it, but yes, I'm just agreeing with you. Yeah, that sounds like his name-ish. Yeah, those are. (laughs) Yeah, that's his name-ish. Those are the three songs in the show for me that are the most like Americana. Very have a lot of um like Sousa elements to them or Ballad of Booth. I say like has a lot of sort of big river vibes because you know it's meant to sort of evoke the old South for whatever that means, and. While I like them, I like them melodically speaking, it's more songs like Unworthy of Your Love and um, Another National Anthem and Something Just Broke that I listen to more on repeat. Uh, I feel like I have more uh, admiration for the ballads in terms of songwriting and storytelling than I do in terms of pure enjoyment. Does that make sense? Yeah, well, they're poppier. They're more like, or like the 
the what did you say unworthy of your love and what were the yeah, unworthy of your love is really the popular one but also another national anthem and something just broke like those are the three songs that i listen to yeah the you, most yeah another national anthem is not poppy but there's i don't know i think it pops um who sang uh who sang the other one oh i don't think you guys did something just broke in your production uh something just okay so ooh, this is actually a good thing to get into so because yeah you guys did i believe the original off-broadway version and then you said you were listening to the cast recording with annie golden so it wouldn't be on there yeah Uh, something just broke was a song that was written for assassins the year after it opened in new york because it was done in london at the donmar warehouse Directed by Sam Mendes. And he was, you know, while he was getting ready to put it up, he was telling Sondheim and Weidman, like, I feel like there's a song missing towards the end after another national anthem. Like, you have another national anthem, you have a really long scene at the library. Uh, and there, like, there needs to be just one more song before we go into Everybody's Got the Right. No, maybe we did sing that, maybe. I'm just forgetting. So, Something Just Broke isn't sung by the assassins, it's sung by the ensemble. Yes. With the, that was in there. That's why I don't remember it. Oh, you, but you guys did do it then. Okay. Yeah, we did. Um, we did. Okay. So yeah, it was um, basically what happened was everybody thinks that it was uh, Sam Mendes was like, we need a song to soften the show. But what happened was, was all Mendes said, it was like, I feel like there needs one more song. Like you're, there's something missing. And Weidman went to um, the depository where they were now sort of become a museum and they have these videos where people talk about where they were when they found out Kennedy was shot. And Wyman's like, oh, that's a song. And like, we don't really have anything from the perspective of the people. It's all within the uh, worldview of the assassins. The only song that sort of comes from the people is How I Saved Roosevelt, which is more of like a mocking kind of song. And there are some people who are assassins purists who love the show without it. They're like, it adds nothing. It's trying to make the show have emotion and there's no emotion in this show and that's why i like it and i'm someone who thinks that the song is actually quite necessary this is the only sondheim show where uh he adds a song after the fact and i think it's an improvement uh he has a couple other shows where he changes things merrily we roll along obviously has had many changes over the years he did a production of follies where he was asked to write new songs and i don't like any of them this is the only one where i'm like i like the new song I mean, he was crying. He was crying. She was crying. I'll remember remember it forever. And I thought... The president's been shot. You know what? There are presidents who aren't worth a lot. I I kept thinking... thinking. There's the kind that gets elected then forgot. Mr. Garfield. Mr. Garfield. He's a hack. Bill McKinley. He's a giant. He's a joke. Still something just broke. I don't know. I feel like it just adds a gravitas to the show that it doesn't normally have because the show is so conceptual up until that point. And that's the song that that reminds you like what these people have done with their lives and the actions that they've taken has consequences on millions. And there's, and this sort of emotional, uh, potency that I feel like without it, the show lacks. So I like that it's there. But don't you think that like the the assassins profiles are in counterpoint 
to like, we already know that everybody was affected by the assassinations of these presidents because we are that song. Like that's what the audience is. Yeah, I, but I think it's easy to forget because we are so wrapped up in the rest of the show. So I, I th- and I, maybe that's also why I find it effective because it is the one song where I'm like, that's us. Like that's, that's where we get to be heard for a second. And it's only for the three minutes of that song. And it's only until the very, very end. They really like hold off on it until the very end, which I think is very clever of them. Um, yeah. Yeah. I don't know. I, I, it's one of those things where it's just like, it's very emotionally compelling to me. And I'm sure uh, you could argue against it and for it, but I just know that the reaction that I get whenever I listen to it is one where I'm like, this fits and this, this, this has felt like a necessary moment for me to just sort of sit in this before we finish out the show. Um, and yeah. I don't think that the show is trying to be sappy with it because if it were, it would close out with that and not with a reprise of everybody's got the right. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. I don't identify with any of those normies. <laughs> I identify more with the assassins. <laughs> Well, I think what I can identify with with the assassins is something that's a theme in a lot of Sondheim shows. Speaking of Gypsy, assassins kind of takes the same theme, which is that, you know, everybody just sort of wants to be noticed. Everybody wants to have their voice heard. And, uh, you know, to bring it back to that last song, something's going to break if some people get ignored or downtrodden for too long. We all have a tipping point. And it's about sort of finding the connecting tissue with all those people and trying to find a way to connect it to us. And I don't know, I I think something just broke is just a nice sort of moment for the audience to breathe and- and, uh, Totally. Yeah, and and reflect on all of it. Have a cigarette, totally. (laughs) I'm just, I'm actually just being a like contrarian. No, I love it. Without- really remembering like the heart and soul of the song to be fair you were off stage and we're probably just like okay what are the lyrics for the next song we learned this two days ago (laughs) exactly it was your moment it was that was your moment to breathe Mm -hmm. i do like i'm like yeah it's a good moment for the audience to breathe and you're like yeah it's a good moment for them to leave the theater and have a cigarette (laughs) (laughs) well i meant that like breathing is smoking a cigarette yeah yeah, no, it's a it's a decompression. I don't know. I I like it. And I if I had clearer thoughts, if I wasn't like just coming off of work right now, I think I would have had like a nice written statement for you where I could. I'm so I'm so curious about what your job is. It's Maybe. nothing special. I work at a um, I work at a private equity firm where my job is essentially to like make sure that everybody has everything they need. And luckily, I only have to be there for like a couple of hours a day. I'm only there till two. But it's like, you know, I get to sit and I can write for a while. And then after an hour, someone's like, can you measure the wall in my office to see if I can put a painting up there? Can you see if the coffee machine's running? Can you do it? I think you can. I think you can. Like, or maybe you just don't come into work today because we're in the middle of a pandemic. Thank you so much. Um, Like I, my job requires me to go in there and everyone else, I'm like, you can do your job from home. We've learned this. So maybe just work from home. But I guess they want to put on pants, which I do not share those feelings. And like get away from their children, I'm sure. That I fully understand. Mm-hmm. The putting on pants in public thing, I can't relate to. I have to put on pants to be in public, but uh, right. getting away from children, totally understand. I know. The, I feel like I've spent my entire life not having children to get away from children. 
sounds to me, Aaron, that you lived. I was fertile as an infant. You what? I was fertile as an infant. But you have chosen the best life. I have. No, I I do know that every day. Sure, babies are cute. I love holding them, but I don't want to hold them for two years and then watch them turn into jerks. Yeah. I it's the equivalent to me of visiting Disney World and living at Disney World. Like yeah. Or like working at Disney World, you know, like I want to go to Disney World for a week as a visitor. I don't want to work there and see how the sausage gets made. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. I'll be a great gunkle. I'll be a great godfather. I'll buy the Um, Halloween costumes. Exactly. Um, You know, I'm the anti-mame who comes in and I'm like, here's your Halloween costume, kid. Now take a shot of bourbon with me. (laughs) Ho-ho. See you after you get back from boarding school. (laughs) (laughs) I'll see you in 15 years when you're back from boarding school. Let me know if any of your friends when you're 18 are hot. Um, (laughs) I said that um, quote from Sex and City. Oh, Samantha on Sex and City won't. Uh, interact with Brady, Miranda's child. And she's like, how about this? When he's 19, I'll take him out for drinks and flirt with his friends. And I'm like, <laughs> that is the best way to be a friend. Yeah, it really is. Um, yeah, she, she's the one character that gets to stay, in my opinion. I think Samantha would have a similar thought, though, about assassins. She'd be like, what's with this ballad at the end of the show? I want to get back to the assassins. <laughs> I don't know. That Guito seemed pretty hot to me. Let's get to his ballad again. Oh, <laughs> Honey, assassinate me in the bedroom. <laughs> That's my Kim Cattrall, everybody. It's really good. Maybe you should see if they'll let you be the fourth. Yeah, because she's not doing it. Have me come in. Have some. Yeah. Have some diverse. Um, I think my interpretation of Samantha is just Alana. My, it's my interpretation of Alana Glazer's interpretation of Samantha Jones. I think that's good enough. If the if the dots are connected securely enough, then it's fine. Absolutely. Um, this all came about by going about the ballads, which then led into something just broke. We didn't even t- really talk about the ballads. Uh, did you get a chance to like listen to those songs, the Ballad of Booth and Guito, when you were learning the show, or was it like as soon as uh, they were working on something else, you're like, great, I'm going to the other room to work on my stuff. Oh, we weren't called unless it was like. You know, I'm not in any of those other mm. scenes, just like the ones that I'm in. So yeah, I only really saw them when we started putting the show together on stage. Okay. So you which got to watch. Pleasure, which was a pleasure. I thought like, you know, everybody was killing their song. And the good thing about this show is that like everybody gets one song. So you can really, really kill it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Did you... So when you were watching these songs and it was more sort of like a, oh, this like this is an interesting little ditty and who and this person that I'm starting to get to know while rehearsing this thing is really killing it. Yep. Very much from a performer perspective, not from a, hmm, the themes of this song are really getting yeah. into my brainiac here. Well, I really had to make a choice not to um, be too clear clever in my commentary about the show because I thought it would take my body out of the show got it just as a as a strategy of making it work sure well so then what was your uh do you remember anything about sort of your approach to squeaky and especially actually no what I really want to get into is the scene with Sarah Jane Moore with one with one Vicky Clark how what was your way into it because as I said earlier 
it's one of my favorite scenes in all of musical theater. I just think it's so well-written and it's funny in a show where like no one ever thinks of assassins as funny until they watch them like, oh, this is funny. Um, so I don't know. Yeah, just talk to me. Tell me. Tell me all. I mean, it was so... I only really remember what was what was challenging for me about that scene, which was just sort of like really feeling the monologue that's inside of it about Charles Manson um, because it was so, like I said, like easy to work with Vicky. So it was like one of those things where, um, yeah, it's not like the scene is not incredibly memorable. It just like, it just like pinged and, and snapped. Well- Fuck my drag then, because I think it's incredibly memorable. Aaron just puked all over my thinking. No, well, so what no, I, mean- I mean, I don't mean that it's not memorable in a bad way. I mean that it, like, uh, I have the gross kind of personality where if there's ease, then I can let it go, mm. and if there's difficulty, then I'll just hold on to it for the rest of my life. And not to bring this up again, but it becomes psoriasis. Got yeah. it. Well, That's so right. how about this? assassins is, is psoriasis and somehow it manages to cure it for some and it just exacerbates for others yeah it cured mine yeah. get me assassin's tip i totally enjoy assassins which is probably why i've never had psoriasis just yes that silky skin forever um i don't think it's a coincidence since when once i got into assassins around 15 that's when my acne cleared up that's when my body got snatched i was like ah look at me everybody's got the right to some sunshine everybody not the sun but maybe one of his I guess um, the place that I was coming from was that like of all the assassins, those were the two women. And uh, I really wanted to make sure that I was as nuanced and present as possible in every beat because it is um, my agenda in life to make sure that everybody knows that every relationship between any kind of person um, is very complicated and full, which is not what the media would present to you historically. So you're telling me that Notting Hill is a lie and that love <laughs> is not that simple? I, um, I never saw it. I'll be honest. <laughs> But I immediately thought Hugh Grant and I immediately thought The Undoing. And that, I will say. Is much more accurate of what (laughs) what a relationship is. Is the best worst ending of 2020. Oh my God. Yeah. Yeah. I think few things have brought this country together than everyone collectively agreeing that The Undoing started so well and ended so poorly. (laughs) I know. And all while we were watching Nexium. The, um, what was that documentary called now? I can't, I was obsessed with it and now I can't even remember the name of it. Nexium, the, the cult, the vow, the vow, the show, the vow. 
I didn't see that. Where's that? God, you got to watch it. I I have a hunch about why you didn't care about the vow. I didn't hear about it. What? I don't even know what that is. What is it? Who is she? What's she about? Um, the vow is a, is a series about Keith Raniere, who may as well be an assassin. He was like a, um, although it's, it's a different horse, uh, who's a cult leader of something of a cult called Nexium, spelled not the way it sounds. <laughs> <laughs> um, and I don't know, he like groomed women to like, be in his cult so he could like eat them out and i can't i can't even remember now i guess the, what i'm learning is i have alzheimer's i guess so. wait was this the cult that that actress from smallville was in yeah yeah yes, yes? okay yeah i knew about the cult i didn't know that they made a documentary okay i have to i have to find this then um they've made two now and there's gonna be a second season to one of them so we're getting so off topic, but I don't fucking care. No, when, when you, no, but when you said it's not spelled the way it sounds, there's a movie <laughs> that back when I back when I was an uh, actor auditioning, there was a movie called Band Slam that I had auditioned for, and uh, it's about this like you know nerdy kid <laughs> who uh, <laughs> moves from one suburb to another suburb somewhere from one suburb I think then to Jersey with his mom, single mom Lisa Kudrow, and he gets uh, involved with a group of kids that have a band, one of uh, whom is a girl with a stutter who's like very alternative, played by Vanessa Hudgens. And her name is Sam, but she puts a five in between the A and the M. The five is silent. <laughs> and just very, like, not trying to like shit on this movie because I didn't see the finished product, so I don't know how it turned out. But I just remember reading the script and being like, this seems like... It, the fault in our stars is version of the like pixie dream girl if she were goth and it's just so but they're they're super self-serious about the five and so i mean i don't think they're saying everyone's going like oh my god that's the most amazing thing ever i think it's supposed to be weird but uh-huh. it's very jughead i'm a weirdo i don't fit in weird 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 thing and it's like i think i think that they thought it was cooler than it was uh, I don't think they thought it was, you know, mind blowing, but the girl does, Vanessa Hudgens does like, it becomes a trend at the end of the movie and other girls in the school are like, I'm putting a five in my name. It's silent. Oh, like. Uh, if I saw the the name Sam with a five in the middle, I would pronounce it Sazam. Sazam. <laughs> to be fair, when you're in high school, we all do things that we think are super cool that are not that are not it. I thought having, I had an extra lock for my locker and I would put it through my belt loop and I thought that that was a fashion statement. It wasn't, I just had a lock on me. It was my own little chastity belt. Don't forget the combo. I I think I always had it on me because I was like, I don't want this lock on me forever. So I was like always mentally thinking about it. And after a month I was like, I'm done with the lock. It's too much work. There are no accidents. There are no accidents. Uh, much like <laughs> assassins. <laughs> uh simply just no accidents but i guess the reason why i um i don't know i the reason why i brought up all the stuff with squeaky and sarah jane in addition to the fact that i just think that the scenes are well done uh they are really the only scenes in the show other well actually no i should say squeaky's the one who has scenes with other people and they're like scenes of people you know what i mean they're not they're not these sort of abstract images 
right uh, she has like full-on uh interactions with uh tension and 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 confusion and all the messiness of life and that's sort of other than something just broke that maybe that's why you don't relate to something just broke as much because squeaky scenes are all the ones that have the messiness of human life and emotions in there and you're like i already did that yeah really humane like she seemed like a three-dimensional person to me for sure yeah and of all the people i don't know i i don't know but like because you sort of understood her assassination attempt to be like a product of her getting involved in a cult without mm-hmm. you know like full agency like she's sort of like um a victim and an aggressor at the same time which you could make that argument for everybody and i feel like that's what the show tries and does tries mm-hmm. to do but i my body wasn't playing everybody else so <laughs> Again, back to the body, right? Well, I'll say that's where you and I differ because my body plays everybody. Uh, <laughs> that's that's actually very fair. And it was, uh, that you reminded me of a point that I did want to make and I didn't write it down, which is why I forgot about it because I'm a stupid bitch. Uh, she's the only one whose assassination attempt is a reaction to another person and wanting to do something for another person, not purely selfish means. Whereas everybody else, well, yes, they are both a victim and an aggressor, their assassination attempts stem from a very uh, personal and for lack of a better term, selfish place. It's how the person that they're trying to kill has affected them or how they're trying to lash, how they're trying to lash out personally at that system. And Squeaky's more sort of like an accomplice to what she thinks is a greater good. And I don't know, I think it's what makes her such a fascinating character in this lineup. Whereas, you know, Booth is quote unquote, a patriot who's, you know, trying to do, uh, you know, do right by uh, a country that's being ruined by what he thinks is Lincoln and uh, other people are lashing out like Guito who has stomach pains and has no job and uh, child gosh, I'm, I'm going to say his name differently every time just to see if it eventually sticks, who is trying to lash out at what he thinks is an oppressive system. He's not wrong, but yeah, it's interesting to see in reg- when you look at sort of all of these characters, how they all have a lot of things in common, but Squeaky does sort of, or sh- should we call her Lynette just sort of out of respect? She is still alive, so why not? Why not? It is Lynette, right? Yeah. Uh-huh. Okay. Um, Lynette, she... Uh, yeah, she's the she's the only one in that in that whole lineup where it's not necessarily what the president has done to her, what the system has done to her, but rather what this other person has informed her of, and then mm-hmm. uh, what she's trying to do for that person. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, which I you know now that we're laying it out like this, I don't feel more sympathetic to her than I do any of the other people. <laughs> <laughs> because I'm like, yeah, the system, I, there's something about radicalism where you take it to the level of being like, I hate this person. I don't believe in what they're doing. So I'm going to shoot them. Like there's something about that, that I can sort of respect. Yeah. And like, <laughs> I mean, think this I mean, is the episode I, that gets, that shuts down the podcast, by the way. I think the government's going to hear this and be like, shut it down. I know. I'm like, just own it. Like, listen, I'm scared of guns. I would never Mm -hmm. do that. My partner has her grandma's Beretta. 
I shouldn't say this. All right. Never mind. Uh, we don't know where you guys are. So is yeah, say, what you, say what you feel. Say what you feel. Say what's in your heart. Okay. She has her grandmother's Beretta. I took it out of its little beautiful box. A Beretta is in a small Italian pistol. Mm-hmm. I don't think that there's ammunition in it. I didn't try and see, but just holding a real gun in my hand. It was similar to the moment in Assassins when they like gave us, we had to do all this like training and stuff with the like stage guns. Cause some of them were real like antiques of like guns that they had to get. And mine was just like this weird, heavy, stupid like fully I, I was like out of a mold but it still felt insane it felt like I was holding a weapon yeah of mass destruction there's have you ever watched Bojack Horseman a little bit yeah. first, the, first couple episodes yeah it it's I always tell people uh if they're gonna watch it they have to uh get through the first season because the whole premise of the show does change after a while it stops being I mean it's still a laceration of Hollywood but it goes into depression and all this other stuff anyway the Allison Brie character Diane at one point she uh gets hold of a gun and she's like super super liberal socialist and she gets a gun and she thinks she's gonna hate it and also she's like it is weirdly empowering and like it changes your whole body when you have it in your hand well yeah the position that your body has to take to to take aim mm-hmm. um that's like a fucking ancient like warrior like position if you're really <laughs> playing it for keeps which on stage you are like yeah. there's a lot of sloppy uh, gun holds i'm sure that work just as well to kill people as like super warrior like ones absolutely but we were but, going for arm length yeah i think though so when you, you were saying earlier i think yeah what the show is trying to say is like there's not that much different between these is these people we see on stage who we have villainized over history and ourselves there's like there's a line that they eventually crossed but they what led them there isn't very different from a lot of the grievances that we've all had yeah and, and that the presidents have had you know yeah. that's another form of radicalism deciding that you're going to be president of the united states of america mm-hmm. that's insane who even wants that job it's the it's, it's the most glamorous awful job in the world yeah. It's so glamorous and it's the worst job you could possibly have. Like you uh you have to remove yourself entirely from like being an ethics queen. Mm-hmm. And that is not that's not it. Not a cute look right now. No. What's it, what's also interesting with each of these characters obviously, you know, nobody nobody thinks that they're the villain in a story. They think they're the hero in the story, right? Like we're all the protagonists in our movie, right? Which is why social media has been the worst thing to ever happen to humanity because, because with this platform, everyone goes, oh, like there's an there's literally an audience out there now for the movie of my life. Everything I do now can truly be importante, which not to drag uh, people in my life, but as we're recording this, it's sort of like the anniversary of when like, Broadway shut down and you know which is a sad ordeal but the things that I've seen on on social media today from people who I know like these are human beings who I've chosen to be my friends with these like posed photos in front of theaters in Times Square in front of a poster with like these long nine paragraph captions about sort of the feelings they're having and as somebody who 
literally just has a podcast to be like, look at me, look at me, look at me. It's for me, it's just more, it's not a judgment. It's just game recognized game. Like it's fine to, you know, have that kind of selfish. I want to be noticed. I want everyone to know what I have to say in this moment, but like, you know, just be a little more transparent about it. And that's sort of the thing with assassins that I feel like where the show makes it clear that they are not endorsing these characters because the show is making clear, like these people think that they're the heroes of their stories. And it's our job to sort of understand that while also then seeing why they're also wrong. Does that, does that make sense? Did I make, did I make a, an actual coherent point? I don't think I did. Um, no, I think you did. I think you did. And that made me think of like, maybe that's the difference between squeaky and some of the other characters is that like, I don't think she thinks that what she did was like heroic actually. I think she just was like doing it. Yeah. Maybe she thought it was heroic in the sense of, uh, again, the idea of a greater good, but again, whereas everyone is like, I matter, I need to be heard at least in regards to how she's portrayed in the show. Her view is, you know, Charlie needs to be heard. Charlie's important. Right. And which is a way to like uh to like triangulate that narrative. To like project like a dude, a dominating dude's like agenda onto your own body by being like adjacent to it. Yes. Yeah. I also should say I've heard triangulate three times my entire life. And two of those times were today during this episode. Ann Carson book, my friend. Mm. Ann Carson. Ann Carson. <laughs> it's on my wish list. Um, yeah. I don't know. I feel like we've, we've were able to kind of cover the show pretty decently. Any, any other things that kind of like stick out to you that while you were re-listening to it while listening to the songs? Well, I wanted to talk about the psoriasis song in act two. That's what something just broke replaced. That's not <laughs> in the show anymore. <laughs> the psoriasis song. Absolutely. I did have a question for you and I've, I've forgotten it. So I, I feel pretty well, sad about that. Was it about the show itself or was it about Broadway? Was it about social media? I have all the answers about social media. No, it was not about social media. Oh, well, I, just I, won't, so I won't remember it. That's a fact. Facts are facts, and that's a fact. So, yeah, I mean, there's not much else I really want to go into. It's a very short show. This is ninety a 90-minute musical. It's the shortest in all of the Sondheim shows. Um, and it's a show that I, in my brain, I always thought was, like, weirder than it is. And it is a weird musical, but it's one of those things where it's, like, when it's kind of, I don't know when when you lean into the theatricality of it when you embrace the dark humor of it it's not as odd as people think like it's definitely one of the most out there concepts for a musical but when you when it's performed I feel like it all kind of odd at all like it's not weird at all well I think it's one of those things like you write down like what the musical is in a sentence and you're like what that's a musical in the same way that you go oh yeah it's about the last week of Jesus Christ and it's all set to rock music it's like yeah that's, exactly. Yeah, but then you see it and you're like, oh, it it all kind of fits. Like it it this works. It's it slightly departs from the the like tropes and formulas that everybody is excited exist in musical theater, mm -hmm. but like it also obeys them as much, and that's why it's a fun show. Mm. Like, but there's certainly a million other examples of that 
in musical theater that like goes to Broadway. Can I name them? No, because I haven't seen enough shows. <laughs> you know, that one thing with the people and the stuff, that show. <laughs> no, there definitely can, there are plenty of examples. We don't need to go through all of them. Uh, let's get into a little bit of the hit legacy, the aftermath with Assassins and uh, talk about this for a little bit longer. When Assassins opened in 91, its reviews were kind of uh, not great. It had some pretty good reviews. Uh, you know, one critic said it's uh, as horrifying as it is hilarious, which some people have said about my body. And <laughs> another critic said, uh, nothing quite prepares you for the brilliant work, but the big review that did not, that sort of killed the show's chances of transferring. And Sondheim says it wasn't the review. He says, oh, we just, you know, uh, timing wasn't right in finding a theater, but I don't believe him. Wait, uh, who, wrote, who wrote the review? Uh, Frank Rich in the New York Times. Okay. Who was, you know, the most powerful critic at the time. And he was a very big fan of Sondheim. He was like the reason why Sunday in the Park with George ran for a year and a half because he just kept on writing about it in the Times. And he's like, hey guys, maybe don't go see Cats for a ninth time and go see Sunday in the Park with George. Be better, just be better. But he didn't like the show. He thought that there were a couple of really great songs, but the thing didn't really come together. Uh, it needs to sort of, he's thought it needs to be a little sharper, a little more accurate. And to be fair to him, the original production of Playwrights Horizons really leaned into the fact that it was a review. Like every song had a different set piece. Every, it was, you know, it, yeah. it didn't feel like it came together. And right. uh, it wasn't until it was done a year later in London when Sam Mendes kind of had a more unifying vision for it. And they added something just broke and Frank Rich came back to see it. And asshole that he is, and I love him, he's my favorite critic. He was like, it's better. I don't, I still don't think it's perfect, but it's better. And that kind of gave them the go ahead of like, okay, so like this is the version of the show we'll be doing like regionally and, and wherever mm -hmm. it gets done again. They were going to bring it to Broadway in 2001 at the roundabout. And 9-11 occurred that fall and roundabout was like, so maybe not the best time for a musical about assassins. Very much. Very, yeah. So they pushed it back two years and they uh, it opened in 2004 at Studio 54 uh, with some amazing actors. It was right before Neil Patrick Harris became huge again with How I Met Your Mother. So at the time, everybody was like, oh yeah, Doogie, he's trying to be a Broadway dude. Yeah. Yeah, which is like you watch, if you ever watch the bootleg That's of that fun. production, because he's not in the opening number as the balladeer slash Lee Harvey, Os Lee Harvey Oswald, he pops up for Booth and nobody gives him entrance applause. And it just shows you like where his career was in 2004. We're like a short, you know, uh, 10 years later, he's doing like, you can't, you can't murder someone for a ticket to Hedwig. But 10 years earlier, everyone's like, oh yeah, Doogie's here. Oh, I forgot that he did Hedwig. He where did is he now? Oh. Where is he now? I think he's in Harlem with his husband and kids. Mm. Yeah, cool. he's doing all the TV stuff. He was pretty good in Hedwig. John Cameron Mitchell was better, but you know, it's not great to compare artists, Aaron. I don't appreciate you making me do that. I don't do it. No. <laughs> it's but you know. I could talk about Bernadette versus Patty all day in Gypsy. You talk about Bernadette versus Patty? Yeah. I mean, if you want, I have no problem with that. <laughs> I mean, I feel like in an episode about assassins, people are like, oh, we already listened to the Gypsy episode. Must you talk about assassins? But I have no problem comparing those two women. I just know Gypsy better than Assassin. Also, Patty loves to compare herself to Bernadette all the time. 
yeah why not you know they it's like what else is there to do it's COVID-19 exactly um the 2004 production is a big old hit it wins five Tony Awards and this is the year of Wicked and Avenue Q so to win five Tony Awards against those two is like hello 12 uh it's done again in New York with you guys at City Center I don't know if uh, anyone in this episode realizes this up until now but you did the show at City Center a few years back Despite what you say, despite you having very few memories of it, you did do it. I did. I did. I do yeah. remember City Center very well. Yes, yeah, so you can see photos of Aaron online. You can watch some videos of it on YouTube. The t- I was reading the Times of, uh, review of your production. I believe it was Jesse Green and he called you like witchy, but like he meant it in a positive way. I can't remember the exact wording, but I just remember the word witchy was in there. I was like, yeah, I guess. Because you had that like long cape that was very the witch yeah. and into the woods. And I'm curious which um, which show he watched because our dress rehearsal. I also had a wig on, and um, Anne Kaufman, amazing director of that show, who I loved working with. Um, she called me late at night, the night before the show opened, and she was like, "How would you feel?" about not wearing a wig. And I was like, <laughs> I feel pretty great about that. <laughs> I was like, I already was born with one, so it makes sense. But anyway, that wig was um, was like this crazy bright red and it- Right. Those are the photos of you are that in the bright yeah. red wig. It was like, it was like Neo Witch, you know, like mm. um, it doesn't matter. No. I'm done talking about that. <laughs> <laughs> then, well, did you read the oral history book on Angels in America, The World Only Spins Forward? I don't think I did. There's a story with the Broadway production of Angels with George C. Wolf and Marsha Gay Harden, where they're in previews and all throughout rehearsals and previews, she has a wig for Harper. And towards the end of previews, George C. Wolf's like, Marsha, I don't, I, the wig's not working. You're hiding behind the wig, Marsha. And like, expecting her to be like okay George I suppose but she's like no I need the wig and he's like it got to the point where the like it was the performance for like the times was coming and like it backstage you have George C. Wolf and Marsha Gay Harden like grabbing onto this wig doing a tug of war and she's like I need it and he's like no you don't so maybe <laughs> Anne thought like that was gonna happen with you she's like Aaron maybe no wig expecting you to be like no I need it well the weird part about it is that the way that you're mic'd which is the most awkward part of being strapped into all this shit is like, Mm. it's actually way easier with a wig because Mm. they just, um, I don't know, it just goes in between your hair and the wig and then they just like tape it to your forehead. But if it's just your hair, they have to like wire it Mm. through your hair in this weird way and it doesn't look normal and whatever. Great story. Uh, Queen, I saw you dozing off and I was <laughs> like, there are other people I could talk to where this would be the entire episode and people would live. So it, do not. I'm <laughs> just annoyed. We didn't talk about your Bernadette versus Patty. I don't want to. I don't want to talk about it. I want to both... my hair. <laughs> talk about your hair. No, they're both, they're, they are both Queens and they both bring respective things to their roles. Uh, any issues I have with Patty's rose is not a problem I have with Patty. It's a problem I had with that production. You know what I don't have a problem with is your hair. 
Let me just say this. Bernadette is um is June. Not not Gypsy. Well, I mean, she's, she's not not Mama Rose. Well, she's June, you know, all grown up. She she's like she is baby Jane, essentially. Her her rose was the a June who never yeah. got to be a June. Yeah. There was a lot I liked about her rose. I I felt more watching her, but I would say Patty's performance is more in line of what the role was quote unquote designed to be, but that's neither here nor there. Um yeah, I mean Assassins was is now sort of becoming a staple in the regional theater market in the, you know, uh avant-garde theater market. It's becoming less and less of a niche cult show and becoming more of just like a staple, which is interesting and I like it. Uh, it was, I think it's becoming a staple of the avant-garde theater market. I didn't mean real avant-garde. <laughs> I know you know actual avant-garde. I'm talking avant-garde in regards to musical theater, you know? Okay, okay. okay. Like, when I say avant-garde, I'm the musical theater girl who's like, I'm the Catholic school girl who's like, guys, I was so slutty last night. He went under my shirt. <laughs> like, that is what I mean. I don't mean any of the other stuff. And I've seen some avant-garde theater in my past and basic ho that I am. I was like, I don't understand it. I want to listen to more chorus line. <laughs> but that's that just a good show at city center. I wish I had seen that, but it wasn't uh, easy to get a ticket. No, I don't know how I did it. Well, you know, you're connected. You're offer only. I'm not connected and I'm not ambitious about those things. So I, you... what I'm saying is if you want a vax, get a vax. <laughs> that's that's what we're saying in this episode if you want to no, ask no i'm not saying that at all the ethics are too fraught well by the time this episode comes out we will all be eligible for a vax so um i think that's great and i can't wait me neither i'll see you online i'll, <laughs> I'll recognize you from the back of the head i'll go that's aaron's hair <laughs> or i'll go or is that a wig yeah, thank you. I was watching the Brandy Cinderella with some friends last night via Scener, that app where you can like watch Netflix or something with friends online. Oh, wow, I haven't tried it yet. It's fun, but uh, because I'm who I am, and it was like my ninth time probably watching it at this point, this, the movie opens and it's Whitney Houston in, in front of the green screen singing Impossible with her big curly hair. And no one says anything. And I just go, that's a wig. Just like, <laughs> and everyone's like, great. <laughs> moving on but I was it like oh, it's important to say that's a wig yeah yeah final thoughts on assassins Aaron besides the fact that it's clearly not as avant-garde as the rest of us basic people think it is it's not a critique it's not a critique <laughs> it's just it's super in the musical theater like canon that's yeah. that's what I want people to take away from my life is just that sentence yes um, it's, it's not it's not weird actually yeah if you're listening to this podcast you're probably an obsessive musical theater person assassins is not that weird and you need to weird up what you are interested in and because there's plenty of weird musical theater that is so good that nobody knows about because it's not on broadway and it's not off broadway sometimes it's not even in america it's in a different country i, I don't believe that for a second <laughs> <laughs> Get educated, people. No, this this podcast, it is very musical theater-y. But we talk about plays, too. We try to talk about theater in general. This series is Sondheim because, uh, you know, it's just a very flashy name that gets people's attention and people can say, oh, I love Sweeney. I love night music. Eventually, I'll be going into other things. But 
to no. cut to cut Sounds the basic amazing. stuff. I, I I cut the musical theater stuff with a lot of gross sex jokes that um, has kept a lot of mothers from letting their children listen to me talk about why they their children need to get educated they're like listen you've got a lot of great stuff to say about Sondheim but you talk about butt stuff way too much I haven't heard you talk about butt stuff even one time well because I was staying focused instead I was talking about your wig and I was talking about Catholic schoolgirls going under the shirt yeah all right I'll I'll take that that's that's the Les part of you um Aaron, this has been fantastic. Thank you so much for coming on and talking about assassins and and uh, dealing with my basicery. Uh, thanks for dealing with my basicery as well about assassins. I um. It's the I only thing that's basic about you. Right, more justice. Yeah. No, oh, I I got to meet Sondheim a couple times. Any stories there? Um, I was pretty well. My my mom at the um at the like whatever the equivalent of the rap party is, closing night party, my mom. <laughs> Aaron's from my, the film world, mostly if you can't tell. No, I was, just said that to please myself, to hope for more money in the future. But um, my mom went up to Sondheim and was like, oh no, what? <laughs> sorry, I know we have to go. But my mom like bumped into Sondheim. That's what happened with a big plate of food. My parents were like the first people at the party just like loading up with free snacks and free drinks. Mm-hmm. Bumped into him, dumped a bunch of like pita bread on the floor and was like, oh my gosh, I'm sorry. Uh, I'm, I'm Squeaky's mom. And then he introduced himself as Stephen Sondheim. And honestly, she got more conversational time with him than I ever did because I was too reverent and frightened. I would love it if that story ended with your, with uh, Sondheim going to your mom like, oh yeah, and this and that and that. And then seeing you and going, should have worn the wig and then walks away. <laughs> should have said no. Should have said no to Anne. Should have should have said no to Anne there. Keep on wearing that wig. Um, Aaron, where can people find you? On, I know we just like shat all over it, but where can people find you on social media? Should you want them to find you? Hmm. I'm most active on Instagram, but COVID's made me a little um more selective about my time on social media, but I'm most active on Instagram and then on Twitter too, at Aaron Markey on Twitter and at Aaron underscore Markey on um, Instagram. And if you have an offer for Aaron, because Aaron's famously offer only. I am. (laughs) uh, You have a website. I, yeah, I guess. Yeah, I do. (laughs) I guess I do. Yes. You can find me on Instagram, y'all, at Matt Coplick, usual spelling. If you like the podcast, listen, I don't like being this needy bitch, but I'm going to be a needy bitch. Like it, review it, subscribe to it, recommend it to friends. The algorithm is real. Uh, The more five-star ratings I get, the more it pops up in other people's searches. And I love being a boutique podcast but uh i would totally settle for being a tri-state chain you know yep yep i think that's where it's at i don't want to say that owns a few mcdonald's yeah but just in connecticut new york and new jersey i don't need to go coast to coast that's a lot i'm busy Mm -mm. there's enough bodies of water in connecticut exactly (laughs) enough enough bodies of water 
Well, if you're bi-coastal, then oh. you're not about the coast. I was just like, <laughs> I was literally thinking of like bodies in water. And then I was thinking actual water. And then I was thinking, wait, how does this work? Coast to coast. Yes, there are enough, the there are enough ponds and lakes in Connecticut that I can say I'm coast to coast. Yeah. Uh, okay, coast to coast. Coast to coast. So, Aaron, we usually close out every episode with a nice uh, Broadway diva. Lately, with the Sondheim stuff, I've tried to keep it relevant to people who are in the show that we've discussed. And I know you're not a Broadway baby, but you mentioned her earlier. So, I think we're going to close out with one Miss Annie Golden. How does that sound to you? Um, that sounds great. You're going to play a song that she sings? I'm going to, it's going to come in in post. So, okay. You- <laughs> I was like, Wait, no. you're bringing her in the room right now? <laughs> Annie, I my hair place. I keep her on, I have her on retainer. She's, uh, she sits in my bathroom every day until I want her to sing a little something from Assassins or Full Monty. Annie, come on in here, girl. Uh, no, yeah, she's, she'll play in post. So uh, when you hear this episode, like two months from now, I'm trying to, I don't know exactly when this comes out. I guess two months from now, you, you'll hear Annie play in towards the end. <laughs> What what song is it going to be, or is that a surprise? It's a surprise. Okay. I don't even know yet. Uh, <laughs> anyway, guys, thank you so much for listening. Uh, make sure to check in next week, where I believe we will be doing The Frogs. Speaking of a show that Sondheim worked on way before it ever came to Broadway. Friend and alum of the pod, Allie Gordon, will be discussing it with me, as she is one of the few people in this world who actually saw it on Broadway. Anyway... <laughs> Thanks so much for making it through, guys, and catch you next week. Bye! Have you ever wondered how your favorite performer actually feels? Well, here's your chance. Welcome to The Quiet Part Out Loud with me, Bobby Steggert, Broadway actor and now a therapist to a whole host of Broadway creatives. Part interview, part therapy, this is not your typical podcast. We'll go right to the heart of things with some of your favorite artists, what they still struggle with, what lessons they've learned, what they haven't figured out yet. There's enormous power in saying the quiet part out loud. Are you listening? Hey, it's Leslie Odom Jr. here on the Broadway Podcast Network to tell you about the RISE Theatre Directory, a program of maestro music. RISE is a national online resource designed to connect and empower backstage and administrative and creative theatre professionals from underrepresented backgrounds. If you work or aspire to work in the theater community, this can help you find your next project. And if you hire theater professionals, search the Rise Theater directory to find your next team. Create your profile now and get more information by visiting risetheater.org. That's theater with an R-E-R-I-S-E-T-H-E-A-T-R-E dot org because only together we rise.